There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Gamar Joba, you're listening to the history of Byzantium. My name is Roberto. And I'm the host of the History of Sakartvelo, Georgia. We're located in the Caucasus Mountain region, right on the coast of the Eastern Black Sea. With a long history of working with and against the Romans, the Georgians are a hardened people who love to eat, drink, and party. We also have a whole slew of mythological figures such as Medea and Jason of the Argonautic fame. And historically, the Byzantines encountered people such as David of Tal, the Kingdom of Lazica, and used Georgia as a sort of base against the Sassanids. You can find us wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts, such as this one, on our website at historyofsakartvelo.com or on Twitter at history underscore Georgia. Sakartvelo is spelled S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L-O. Now, enjoy listening to The History of Byzantium. Hello everyone and welcome to The History of Byzantium, episode 236, Why Make Peace? Last time, we discussed Manuel's attempt to regain a foothold in Italy. Despite initial success, his agents failed to dislodge the Normans of Sicily. Eventually, the Romans were forced to make peace and wait for a more advantageous situation to develop. With Italy quiet and the Balkans quiet, Manuel could finally turn his attention back to Anatolia. And he needed to, because Cyprus had just been raided by forces from Antioch and Cilicia. It was time to punish the miscreants responsible and reassert imperial authority in the East. As you know, Manuel's father, John Komnenos, had spent the best years of his reign campaigning in Anatolia. John had attempted to capture the Danish Mend capital, he'd led punitive raids against Iconium, and he'd fought in and around Antioch. Manuel had grown up in his father's army camps. He'd learnt to ride and fight in Anatolia. He became emperor, as you know, in Cilicia. Since then, Manuel had spent 15 years away from the east. He'd fought the Turks soon after being crowned, but then came the Second Crusade, which seemed to change everything. Not only did the crusade alert Manuel to the danger which the Normans posed, but it also indicated that any attack on Outremir would be met with fury in Western Europe. The fear that another crusade would be called, 
that French or German armies might again camp before Constantinople seemed to hang over Manuel. Where his father had been able to dictate terms in Cilicia and Antioch, he now had to tread carefully. Let's run through what happened before returning to this thought. Manuel gathered his army in the summer of 1158 and took the road to Italia. A group of Turks attempted to attack them en route, but were driven off with relative ease. The Byzantines made it safely to Cilicia by the autumn. The men who Komnenos was here to punish were Thoros, the leader of the Armenians, and Renaud, the prince of Antioch. It was these two who had recently returned from Cyprus, laden with plunder. Thoros's Armenians dominated the Taurus Mountains, and had used their position to take control of the cities of the Cilician Plain. But as soon as Manuel appeared, Thoros fled for the hills. It took little effort for the Romans to surround each Cilician city in turn, and accept the surrender of their garrisons. Manuel spent the winter at Mopsuestia, allowing his enemies to sweat for a few months. In spring 1159, Renaud, the prince of Antioch, came to Manuel to beg for mercy. He knew that the Romans were here to punish him, and since the waiting can sometimes be the worst part, he got it over with as quickly as possible. Dressed in the rags of a penitent, wearing a rope around his neck, Renaud presented himself to Manuel. He got down on his knees and handed over his sword. After a suitably humiliating wait, Manuel forgave the prince and confirmed him as the legitimate ruler of Antioch. Renaud took the oaths of vassalage, which the Latins were so fond of, and promised all the things which Raymond and Bohemond had done before. He would allow Manuel to garrison Antioch's citadel on request, he would allow an orthodox patriarch into the city, and he would provide troops to serve in the emperor's army. Renaud also begged for forgiveness for Thoros, the Armenian leader. Manuel extended an invitation to the Lord of the Mountains, who also came humbly to see the Vasilevs. For those of you binging the podcast, you may recall that John had arrested Thoros's predecessors and spent a good amount of time besieging their mountain fortresses. Manuel broke with this policy, confirming Thoros's rights to hold the highlands and binding him to the Romans by treaty. Both of these agreements were made in public. Once word got round that the emperor of Constantinople was in Cilicia, envoys from far and wide came to see him. Armenians, Georgians, Latins and Turks were all present at Mopsuestia to witness the emperor dispensing justice. You may remember that last episode Manuel put on a similar show when deciding the succession of the Serbian throne. The Romans saw great propaganda value in their emperor being seen to preside over the appointment of distant potentates. One of Manuel's court poets described Renaud as being forced to curl up like a puppy at the emperor's feet. Next to arrive was King Baldwin III of Jerusalem. He was warmly welcomed, though obviously sat on a lower throne than the Vasilevs. Baldwin would stay with Manuel for ten days, and by all accounts, they got on well. 
As I mentioned last episode, Baldwin had asked Manuel for a bride from the Comnenian house, which he'd then received. Not only did Baldwin want the hefty dowry she came with, but he needed Byzantine support. In contrast to Manuel's fears, Baldwin was confident that no repeat of the Second Crusade was on its way. So in order to find the resources he needed to keep Outremir afloat, the king had to develop friendlier relations with the Romans. This demanded a certain amount of humility on the part of the Latins. Privately, they may have resented the airs and graces of the Byzantine court, but publicly, they knew the price they had to pay for imperial support. It was in this spirit that Manuel made a triumphal entry into Antioch at Easter 1159. Komnenos was decked out in all his finery and astride a great horse, while Reynaud and his senior men walked in front of him, holding the reins. The Varangian guard followed behind to make sure there was no trouble, while behind them rode Baldwin. On a horse, yes, but with no insignia of his rank, as a sign of respect to the emperor. The elite of Utremir were making it clear to anyone watching that Manuel was their overlord. Komnenos was welcomed by the crowds and assembled clergy and stayed in the city for a week. All of this had been carefully negotiated with Baldwin, and in turn, Latin submission also came at a price. Manuel was to lead them on a campaign against Aleppo. Capturing that great Muslim city would restore the Christian position in Syria. Essentially, this meant that Manuel was being asked to complete the mission that his father had begun 20 years earlier, one which the Latins of the day had somewhat sabotaged. The Allied Christian army set off soon afterwards and marched into the territory of Nur al-Din. The Emir, as you know, was the major enemy of the Latins. He now controlled an extensive realm, including Mosul, Aleppo, Edessa, and now Damascus. The emir was ill, though, and was very wary of the Byzantines getting involved in his business, so he quickly sent emissaries to the Allied camp to offer peace terms. This included the return of 6,000 Latin prisoners, who were taken during the Second Crusade, and an alliance against the Turks of Iconium. Nur al-Din's borders now pressed up against the Taurus Mountains, so it was a straightforward, my enemy's enemy is my friend situation. Much to the surprise of the Latins, Manuel accepted these terms immediately, called off the campaign, and raced back to Constantinople. The emperor was able to argue that the return of prisoners was a great victory for the Christians, and that his mere presence had scared the emir into offering concessions. Though the Latins were unhappy, they could hardly show their displeasure to the man they'd just sworn oaths to. The Byzantine army marched home very quickly. They raced across Cilicia and even skirted Iconium's territory in their haste to get back to the Bosphorus. Some units fell behind and were picked off by the Turks as they passed. The reason for all this haste was that news had reached Manuel while in Syria that a coup was taking place back in Constantinople. Two senior officials had to be executed, and Andronicus, the emperor's cousin, had escaped from prison. I'll deal with the details in our next episode, but once Manuel was home, the situation was quickly restored. 
As you can now see, things had changed considerably since the Romans were last in the east. Instead of dishing out punishments, Manuel forgave. Instead of asking for Antioch to be returned to the empire, this was never mentioned. Even Thoris's Armenians, who would definitely attack the Cilician cities again one day, were allowed to stay in place. It would be tempting to see all this as a sign of weakness, that Manuel was now scared of upsetting the Latins and had settled for ceremonial dominance rather than anything tangible. But there was a little more to it than that. Historian Paul Magdaleno argues convincingly that the fall of Edessa had made Antioch less of a prize to hold. Antioch was now the front line in the conflict with Nur al-Din. As we just saw, the two great powers could share a cordial peace so long as they had buffer states between them. But if the Romans occupied Antioch, they would end up in constant conflict with this powerful Muslim state. That was the last thing that Manuel wanted, another enemy peace on the crowded chessboard. There were lots of reasons the Romans wanted Antioch back, but strategically, it was to help them surround the Turks of Anatolia. The imperial ideal was that the Latins would live beyond Antioch, facing east, as it were, while their garrisons at Antioch could face west. Now that Antioch was all that was left of Christian Syria, it was, in a way, better to leave it in Latin hands. Once that decision was made, the same logic applied to Cilicia. The Armenians could be useful allies in fighting the Turks. To disempower them would leave the small Roman garrisons of the area with little chance of holding out if the nomads invaded. The subjugation of Reno and Thoros was not just ceremonial either. As we shall see shortly, Manuel would force them to honour their obligations, providing him with the manpower he needed to intimidate the Turks. So while not a great long-term solution, Manuel's actions in the East offered short-term possibilities. Over in Anatolia, the Sultan of Iconium was caught unawares by the coalition forming against him. This was Kilij Aslan II, son of Masud, the sultan who'd been in charge during the Second Crusade. Manuel was planning a major campaign against Iconium, a retaliation for the attacks he'd suffered while crisscrossing Anatolia the previous year. He decided to call upon all the troops who were owed to him by treaty. Not only did this mean sending word to Thoros and Renault, but to the Serbians as well. He also activated his diplomatic network, he informed both Nur al-Din and the Danish men's that he would be marching against their mutual enemy. He also made contact with Kilij Arslan's brother, who was very interested in Byzantine backing for a tilt at the throne. The following summer, 1160, was a triumph of imperial diplomacy. The Danish men's raided Iconium's territory, and Kilij Arslan had to watch his back for news of his brother. Meanwhile, Roman armies invaded from east and west. Manuel actually had to return home shortly after making it onto the plateau when news reached him that his wife had died. But in the end, that didn't matter. A Christian coalition army invaded from Cilicia and defeated the nomads in battle. Manuel had dispatched his nephew, John Contostefanos, to Cilicia with a few hundred men to gather his allies. With their treaty obligations fresh in their mind, 
Thoros and Reno followed through and sent contingents to serve the Romans. Contostephanos raised more troops from the Cilician population and hired some knights who were passing through on pilgrimage. In the end, he led a rather useful force up onto the plateau. Kilijarslan was shocked to learn that an army was coming from that direction. He sent riders to shut them down, but they fell prey to the charge of the Latin knights and dispersed. That campaign season of 1160 was, in many ways, the culmination of the plan Alexius Komnenos had conceived some 70 years earlier. The Turks were set against one another, then dual Byzantine armies marched onto the plateau in a pincer movement, causing chaos. Kilij Arslan II had no choice but to sue for peace. He offered to come to Constantinople in person and bow down before Manuel. The following year he did just that, and once more Komnenos made the most of this spectacle. Apparently the sultan stayed for a couple of months, and was royally feasted and entertained. Chariot races were put on, as well as a display of Greek fire. Then, after signing a peace treaty, the sultan was weighed down with expensive gifts. The agreement stipulated that the Turks must respect the Roman border and attack any nomads who violated it, Prisoners must be returned, and the sultan was required to provide troops when the emperor needed them. He even agreed to return Roman cities that he captured, as in the ones that the Danishmen's currently held. The sultan returned to Iconium, and the peace between the two sides would last for 15 years. But I would ask, why make peace with the Turks? After studying John's reign and seeing how successful he was campaigning in Anatolia, I was really interested to see what Manuel would do. He fought in those campaigns, so he must have understood how important they were. And as we've seen, the first 15 years of his reign were taken up with Western distractions, so now was the right time to turn east again and pick up his father's legacy. Instead, Manuel seemed satisfied with the peace he obtained, which would be fine if he had better things to be getting on with, but as far as I'm concerned, and a number of modern historians too, he didn't. As we'll see when the narrative moves forward, Manuel chose to focus on projects which have an air of fantasy about them, instead of the hard graft of campaigning regularly against the Turks, slowly grinding the nomads down one season at a time. I don't think that's because Manuel wanted an easy life. He was a soldier through and through and would go on campaigning right to the end of his days. But I struggle to understand the decision to leave Anatolia quiet for another 15 years and focus on far less realistic goals. Perhaps we need to try and understand the Emperor's personality a little better. So next time, let's put the narrative on pause and talk about Manuel the person his family, his court, church matters, and of course that rascally cousin of his, Andronicus. While you're waiting for that episode, why not have a listen to another podcast, The History of Sacatvelo, Georgia. As Roberto said in his introduction, Georgia, under many different names, has been a part of our podcast all along. From Justinian's battles with Kusro to Heraclius's march through the borderlands, 
onto the support offered to the Phocas family during the civil wars and the violence which Basil II unleashed in response. In fact, while the Romans are struggling with the Turks on the plateau, the Georgians are having one of their strongest historical periods. They were able to dominate the highlands, keeping the Danishmens and Seljuks from spreading their influence further north. Sakat Velo, by the way, is what the people who live in Georgia call their country. So, if you'd like to find out more about Georgian history, then please visit historyofsakatvelo.com or search for it wherever you get your podcasts. Madloba. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.